I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, a show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today's guest is Mr. James Hay. He's a cycling coach with a unique stable of athletes. We'll be discussing the inspiring story of three of the young Afghan cyclists who are in James' stable. They fled their home country in Afghanistan and are now asylumed in the UK. They're aiming to compete in the time trial at the upcoming Olympics in Paris. We'll be talking about the challenges these girls faced in Afghanistan, including the humanitarian crisis and the ban on women's sport by the Taliban. We'll also explore the logistical difficulties they faced fleeing their home country, the trauma they experienced and the disruption to their training. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. When I first met the girls and they were talking about they had to ride at night, they had to dress up as men. I mean, these are things which it's almost like a parody. It's like a, it's like a little bit of a joke, you know. But to, to dress up as a man and ride at night, just to be able to ride a bike, you know, going over to Thailand for this, this qualifier, they'll be competing against some big countries, you know, like South Korea, China. For them, it's, we chatted about it, it's a symbol of hope. It's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a symbol of, you know, doing it for Afghan women, doing it for Muslim women, and doing it for them, for their journey. The sort of alarm bells of how, how serious and the severity of this project is, one of the, the athletes was captured and beheaded. It's not just a, a journey for the seven girls that came over from Afghanistan and for the two which are going to go for the Olympic qualifiers in June. It's, it is a message for all the other Afghan women back in Afghanistan and for the Muslim women around the UK and around the world that, you know, access and, you know, that underrepresented sort of sector in the world can have access to cycling. James, good morning. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for the invite. Pleasure to be here. James, obviously, to preface this at the start, obviously a conversation between two white dudes to discuss the situation, which is a uniquely female situation, isn't ideal, but the language barrier makes it very difficult for us to get the girls on. So I can't really think of a better advocate and a more passionate advocate for the girls than yourself. I've heard you on a couple of podcasts and news articles and they, they should be proud to have you as their representative in, in their corner. Yeah, it's an absolute honour and privilege, um, not only to come on the show, but obviously to get involved in this project. So it was about October last year, a friend of mine introduced me to um, a charity and um, I didn't know anything about the charity, but I run a small cycling business in southwest London, which introduces kids to the sport of cycling, so road cycling, track, BMX, basically anything which is competitive. And the initial request to get involved with this project was, can you provide seven bikes for seven female Afghan athletes? And uh, initially, I just thought, yeah, no problem. I had no idea of the scope. I didn't know what level they were at. I didn't know why they were coming to the UK. So initially, I just engaged and said, yeah, I can help out. A little bit of a charitable cause. And then as the weeks and months have rolled on, um, we've sort of whittled down to two athletes and we've got some fantastic targets and aspirations coming up. So even when the charity comes to you looking for seven bikes, is that you looking to use your local connections in bike shops to source those bikes or are you literally dipping into your own bank account to buy these girls' bikes? I think it's a, it's a bit of both. But in this instance, because we work with children, we knew these were women. They weren't children. They aged from 19 to 32, 34. Um, it was a case of, okay, I'm going to have to reach out to some of the cycling network that I work with 
in southwest London. And that's like from Hillingdon Slipstreamers, for example, which is a West London cycle circuit. I know they've got bikes. So it was a little bit of beg, steal and borrow, but I didn't really know what the scope was. But as you've seen from the articles with BBC, um, CBS News and others, it's a great opportunity, not just for the girls, but for what we say, like, I suppose, underrepresented um, cyclists. You know, like you say, cycling is very much um, a white middle-class sport and access to it for the underrepresented, let's say, women, Muslim women particularly, um, and Afghanistan, which we'll touch on shortly. It's, um, it was just a great opportunity to sort of help there. Yeah, to give some context even to what's going on out in Afghanistan at the moment, it's one of the world's worst humanitarian crises out there. It's w- aid from the West has been suspended because the ruling Taliban government actually won't allow that aid into the country anymore. So now there's millions of Afghans that are facing the prospect of starvation in the coming months. It's pretty wild that from the dust and debris of that horrible situation comes this amazing almost phoenix from the flames story of hope yeah 100 percent. so for the listeners that don't fully understand the situation in afghanistan obviously we had a withdrawal a couple of years ago the us and uk and uh, moved out smoothly done as well oh, oh like literally overnight and um getting to know the girls and the interviews they've done the taliban came in overnight and for women's rights and obviously there's human rights as well, but the women's rights, education, sport, all the things which we take for granted in the Western world were taken away from them. So is that a law now? Girls can no longer attend secondary school or any sort of higher education? That, that's right. It's, um, it's forbidden. It's like, um, like to, to use a gymnasium, to use a bicycle, they're simply not allowed to do it. They've got to, you know, I mean, got some fascinating stories from when I first met the girls and they were talking about they had to ride at night that to dress up as men. I mean, these are things which it's almost like a parody. It's like a, like a little bit of a joke, you know. But to, to dress up as a man and ride at night, just to be able to ride a bike, it's that's that's going some. We had, I'm not sure if you followed boxing scene much, it's a reference I come back to time and time again, just because it's so inspirational, but also a proximity, it's so close to home. Katie Taylor, potentially, arguably the world's greatest ever female boxer. When she came up not too long ago, Katie's still fighting and still the current world champion. When Katie came up as a child, she had to dress in drag to compete in boxing matches. So they dressed her up as a boy and then she'd go and win the lads' tournaments because uh, it wasn't thought ladylike to fight. And we're only talking 15, 20 years ago in Ireland. There wasn't a boxing division for females. And that you know, spawned, obviously, this amazing new genre of female athletes. So you know, it's the hope that when you put girls like your coaching into the limelight, it will inspire others that people will say, okay, there's someone that looks like me. There's someone that dresses like me, my religion, my gender, my social context, and they can make it all the way to the Olympics. Why can't I? This is it. So it's not just a journey for the seven girls that came over from Afghanistan and for the two which are going to go for the Olympic qualifiers in June. It's, it is a message for all the other Afghan women back in Afghanistan and for the Muslim women around the UK and around the world that, you know, access and you know, that underrepresented sort of sector in the world can have access to cycling. It was really interesting, Anthony, when the girls came over, I didn't know what they were going to be like on a bike. I didn't know whether they were going to do it socially, whether they were going to be competitively. I just knew, heard there were a cycling team from Afghanistan. And you'll know yourself from, you know, competing at the highest level. It's like 
we all find a level within cycling. Now that cycling level, it might just be a local crit, might be, you know, a cat three, cat four. It might go in on a tour. It might be a pro. You might start to receive money for it. So for myself, it was, what do these girls want? What, where are they emotionally, physically, mentally? How far can we push them? Do they understand about power? Do they understand about heart rates? It was just, I mean, for me, it's, it's almost ignited my passion for cycling again. It's just, yeah, it's just like teaching. It's, it's not just the coaching. It's almost like a mentor as well to the girls. Maybe to, to help us understand some of that, the Allied Forces withdrew, I think it was August 2021, in pretty rapid fashion. So overnight, the cultural context for these girls swapped. Like Taliban came in, blanket ban on sports, education, and so forth. But the culture they would have grown up in, forming these cycling clubs, starting to train, was largely pre-Taliban. What was the cycling infrastructure like pre-Taliban? As you appreciate, each federation um, or Olympic committee across the across the world, whether it's UK, Australia, Netherlands, America, we all have varying methods and, and differences um, of quality, let's say. So Afghanistan, um, no disrespect to their federation, it's not as heavily funded and the standards just aren't anything like we've got in the West. So I wanted to understand, have the ridden road bikes? Do they do track riding? What sort of competition do they do? And as it transpired, the girls rode in a cycling team, which was run by um, an Afghan male. And they, they didn't particularly race competitively, but they rode road bikes. It's as simple as that. They rode road bikes, and they rode in pretty arid conditions. You know, roads weren't fantastic. Perfect for gravel cycling. Exactly that. You could probably got a picture in your mind of what it's like. And I did get a picture of the girls. Now, the sad thing was there was there was a number of cyclists and not all of them made it to the UK. And the sort of alarm bells of how how serious and the severity of this project is, one of the, the, the athletes was captured and beheaded. Oh, my God. And, I mean, when, when you start to hear about that in the news, you know, you hear about beheadings and you hear about executions all the time in, in countries where you have ISIS and Taliban and stuff. But when you get involved in the project, then things get real and you start to think, well, this is quite serious. So when I was connected with the project, the girls hadn't actually arrived in the UK and they were on transit. We didn't know when they were going to arrive and the charity were working on myself to prepare for their arrival. So I really didn't know what I was going to get. But when the Taliban did come in, it was a matter of, okay, we need to get out because we're a cycling team. Yes, we've got aspirations to study. We can't do that. We do like our sport. And they were encouraged by their families, look, you need to you need to get out of Afghanistan. As you saw from the media on the TV, it was just, yeah, I mean, every every man for himself trying to leave that country. And is the path out, is that like an, an official path, as in like, you know, excuse my naivety on it, it's, is it like the UK government will go in and say, look, we're t- going to take 500 asylum seekers and they're chartering flights to bring asylum seekers to the UK? Or is it very much these kids have to figure out how to, you know, almost great escape style their way out of the country? And then once they're in Pakistan, et cetera, then they can start looking at asylum applications. I think when the withdrawal initially happened, I think the international community, being the West, America, Europe and UK, they chatted about a roundabout figure of taking about 40,000 refugees. So whatever method that may be, you know, it goes through the Home Office, for example, in the UK. Now, I've not really got involved with the humanitarian side of things. I've just focused on the cycling. But um, I think it's a combination of individual charities doing their work, connecting with whoever wants to, you know, make that journey, make that resettlement. So when 
the seven girls came over to the UK, there was one girl, um, I won't say her name just for security reasons, but her na- um, she, she reached out to somebody from the BBC she'd met through her work and then got in touch with the charity. And the charity is called Help Children Now. So the word Help Children Now, you'd think, well, well, these are women, how does it work? But they decided to make a pledge to these women and do some fundraising and work with the Home Office. And there was a, there was a lady called Yvette Hoyle who spearheaded the whole humanitarian side and she was getting daily conversations and video calls from the girls that were crying, who were tearful, they were begging, they were pleading, please, can you help us get out of this country? You know, cycling was the side products. We used cycling as a mechanism to get them to the UK so they could then further their journey wherever we ended up. But the humanitarian push to get the visas, to get the hotels, to get the flights, they ended up in Pakistan from Afghanistan and they made their own way there. It wasn't anything to do with the government. They were in a safe house in Pakistan. It's 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 been a it's been a crazy journey, and um, yeah, thank God they're here now. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's been pretty stressful. I have a really exciting season of gravel racing planned. Some amazing races. I absolutely can't wait for the migration gravel race over in Kenya and Badlands in Spain jumps out as another highlight. But I really don't want to slip on this podcast. I'm not going to. I'm sticking to this six days a week schedule that I've promised. So I needed to find tools to make sure that every hour I have available counts. That's why I'm super happy to partner with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's in the recording studio right beside my desk. If I have an hour free between interviews, I literally just jump on. It's removing all the friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees, trying to get things to connect. It just works seamlessly every single time. The Watt Bike Adam, it's also perfect for when I decide to do a Zwift race. It has crisp gear changes, 1% power accuracy, and a max gradient capability of 25%. Even on the steepest climbs over in Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm using like a custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route in Watopia, I'll select more suitable climbing gear ratio. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend this one any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. You can now get 10% off the What Bike Adam. Just head on over to whatbike.com. They have a limited time sale running at the moment. So if you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about buying a smart bike for a while, or like me, the turbo trainer was just proving too frustrating, now is an amazing time to buy. Just head on over to whatbike.com. The policy decisions of European countries, they always kind of baffle me. There's a real prioritization of one conflict over another. You look, I'm not saying one is worse than the other, they're all bad. But you look at the ease with which we've assimilated in Ukrainian refugees and the number of Ukrainian refugees, it far outstrips the number of Afghan refugees. And the friction they have at every point in terms of visas just seems so much more difficult you know, you'd like to think it's not a racially driven, but is it? It's a very media driven. It feels, you know, we're seeing this you know, very prevalent culture of prioritizing certain conflicts and others, you know, other equally and sometimes worse atrocities are kind of swept under the rug. I totally agree, and um, you hit the nail on the head there. Is it is it racially motivated? Is it because it's culturally different? You know, are we closer aligned culturally to Eastern Europe than we are Asia, which is Afghanistan, you know? Is it because we look similar? Is it because we look different? There's a lot of questions to be asked, but you're quite right. You know, the conflict happened just over a year ago 
in um, in the Ukraine, and we seem a little bit more open to refugees from Ukraine. No one's flying Afghan flags around my estates. There's a lot of Ukrainian flags flying. It's uh, yeah. I mean, there's refugees from all over the world, and um, it's. I've sort of dipped my toe into it, and I've learned a little bit more um, since I've been on the projects. Whereas you appreciate, you know, when you watch on the TV about the the situation in Afghanistan, you think you've got a handle on it. Well, I certainly did. I thought, okay, that's that's pretty naughty. It's, it's it's not pleasant, you know, poor girls. But when you're dealing with them, you know, a couple of times a week in person, you know, not just from a cycling perspective, but I mentioned the word mentor and, you know, we go for dinner, we go for breakfast, we chat about this introduction to, you know, cycling in the UK. It's not just about the cycling. They have the emotional moments, Anthony, and they talk about, you know, they still miss the family. They've got family out there. And it's it's huge, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah, and, you know, my choice to contrast it against Ukraine is in no way to downplay what's going on in Ukraine. I've had Yaroslav Popovich, former... Uh, Radio Shack Rider on the podcast, Ukrainian national. He's doing amazing work out there, but it's just, it's heartbreaking to hear that there's other atrocities that don't get that same attention. Was there a tipping point for the girls? Like what was the circumstances that led to them fleeing? It was it was literally um, the, the withdrawal and overnight Taliban coming in. They realized, and they spoke to their families, that it wasn't a place for them. These are young women with bright futures, you know, just like any aspiration of any girl in the world, what do they want to do? They want to study, they want to work, they want to work out, they want to do the sport, have families. And yeah, that that was the tipping point. The tipping point was the Taliban came in. It was just as simple as that. It happened overnight. If you look at the interview, the BBC ran, and maybe it was about two months ago now, I mentioned her name because she's in the press. Mina, she's our team captain. Uh, she said it was like it just went from night, sorry, day to night, overnight. It just happened. And her father... I've seen that clip, yeah. It's harrowing. Yeah. And her father encouraged her, look, this is a time, you know, you need to get out. I wonder, like, these girls like Mina, to reference, like, they've endured, you know, experiences that I probably haven't ever experienced, even in nightmares. And they've lived these experiences. And obviously you wouldn't wish those experiences on anybody. But I'm wondering, is there an upside to them going through that and coming out the far side in terms of resilience, which can now be carried into their cycling or sporting endeavours? You know, I touched on it in a couple of interviews. Um, you know, cycling is a gritty sport. It's a hard sport. You know, even for the most affluent, and most comfortable, you know, whether that's financially or whether it's a technical support, but you need resilience to cycle, uh, certainly at a competitive level. The journey that the girls have taken over the last 15 months from Afghanistan to Pakistan and now to the UK, away from their families, that resilience, that drive, that tenacity, which we chatted about, um, is, is something which is transferable. I honestly believe if they can go through something like that, you know, applying that to a, a sport, you know, doing an hour's threshold session, you know, how, how, how tough is that really compared to what they've yeah. just done, you know? I love these mental benchmarks and I use them all the time. If I have a, a cold day and I'm like, oh, this is real cold. I'll think back to, I had a particular race called Lake of Bays in Canada. It was probably 2013, 2014. It was unbelievable conditions. Brake cables frozen, gear cables frozen, couldn't get the bottles out of the cage, underdressed. I think, you know, 90% of the field ended up dropping out with hypothermia. That day and finishing that day and having that choice point, as I call it, at each kilometer saying, I could climb off or I could continue. And you say, I'm going to continue. 
and to navigate those choice points all the way through a 150 kilometer race. When you're out now on a bad day and it's kind of pouring rain and it's two degrees, you have that anchor point to go back to and go, yeah, it's not as bad as that day. Those anchor points for them must be, you know, particularly <laughs> deep. Like, you know, you reference them. I don't like to joke about it, but you reference friends getting beheaded. You know, th- there's almost nothing that compares to that. There's nothing they're going to go through in life that's going to be as difficult as getting past those moments. Like that Winston Churchill quote, when you're in hell, keep going. Exactly that, yeah. I mean, the journey that they took, and it's almost like, um, you know, the Taliban, we know what they're about. Oh, we've got an idea. They're a nasty bunch. And for these girls to want to do their sport, you know, like, could you imagine fleeing your country because of that? I mean, the term refugee, which often is misunderstood, it's like you're leaving the place of danger. So I refer back to that. They went to Pakistan. They didn't know anyone in Pakistan. They didn't have any money. Where are they going to feed? You know, where they're going to stay, all of this kind of stuff. So going out in the cold and getting cold hands and taking a little bit of time to warm up, it's, it, it pales in insignificance, I think. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatellis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. Do they get set up in the UK in terms of the, the rest of their life? I know, you know, the security is obviously a big concern for you and the girls still, so you can't give specific details, but are they allowed to earn an income? Are they allowed, you know, continue education? Do they have their own houses? What's life looking like for them now? Yeah, so there's a resettlement plan in place, um, which I don't know the granularity of it. That's dealt with with the charity, but the girls have been accepted by universities, which is fantastic. So um, at the moment, yes, they are resettled. They're all together in some government um accommodation but in september they're going to continue with their studies so that's fantastic and they're learning english a few of them speak absolutely fantastic english you've probably heard the interviews and the rest are learning so then the sport just like you know whether you're amateur or semi-pro or even pro you know it's they can do that on the side they can still go about their lives and they're slowly building their lives so the humanitarian side learning languages finding a new home making friends earning some money that's, that's all going on as well. So there's, there's an awful lot of noise going on for these girls at the moment. It must be an immense sense of freedom for them to go from a place that's so restrictive and limits on their behaviour to now coming to the UK, having a couple of quid in their pockets, you know, they can go out and socialise, ride their bikes. A lot of cultural change, but also a lot of upside with it. Yeah, I mean, when, when they first came over, um, we knew... Like, honestly, a couple of days before they were going to board that plane and get here. That's as much notice as we had. So I reached out to uh, Trek. Um, I reached out to uh, Hellenden Cycle Circuit, some coaches. I reached out, I reached out to a female Muslim cycle group called Evolve. Um, I mean, I'm a white working class guy from Middlesbrough. The cultural differences, <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand Afghan. I don't know the language. I didn't even know how to say hello. Um, and I still struggle now with it. How do you say Hello. Oh, exactly. I struggle with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so 
I think it's Salam. I think you say Salam, um, which is short. I think it's a bit of a longer version. But I reached out to a lady called Ifat. Now, she she runs a female Muslim group. I'm quite a touchy-feely sort of person when it comes to coaching. I'll put my arm around someone or say, listen, we do this. And I thought, I can't do that with these girls. You know, I can't go over and give them a hug. I can't say well done on something. I can't shake their hand. I've got to wait for them to come and shake my hand. So there's a lot of learnings there. So just the, just the day-to-day stuff is a big cultural change. And nutrition, which I'll touch on in a bit, it's just been huge. I mean, the cycling, which is one thing, but trying to educate them on how to fuel themselves properly, whether it's pre, on the bike, and after. That's just my biggest challenge at the moment, the biggest challenge. The cultural difference is massive. I ran a training camp uh, like a number of years back in Qatar. We Behind the podcast, we have a coaching company and we had a big client base in Doha, Qatar. And we ran a training camp out there and there was an amazing girl out there who I've since become friends with who attended the training camp, a local girl. And it was her, she was educated in Stanford or MIT, uh, you know, Ivy League in the US. So she's very well educated, very articulate and was able to really explain to me, you know, the cultural sort of faux pas that I'd have to navigate. Like you couldn't, I couldn't be seen to put a, you know, if she was getting dropped, I couldn't be seen to put a hand on her lower back to push her back into the group. I couldn't be seen to be in the room alone with her doing like a nutrition consultation, things like this. And, you know, when you're so used to that, and that's just how you navigate coaching day to day, that can be difficult. And you can find yourself tripping up on that stuff quite easily. And, you know, it's massively offensive in that culture. 100%. Initially, when we met the girls, I'd got together a chairman of Hillingdon Cycle Circuit in West London. I got Ifat from Evolve Cycling. I got a guy called Robin from, from Trek over at the Brackle store and just a few of the volunteers from various clubs. And the seven girls came and we gifted them seven road bikes. And um, they couldn't believe it. You know, there was tears. There was, there was lots of different things. Didn't know whether they could, they could ride a bike. Didn't know... I didn't know anything. I didn't know what level could they ride in cleats. I mean, it's just been a, a brand new thing. You remember, Anthony, when you got into cycling, the very first time you understood about power and cadence. Remember, it's just like it's almost following like breadcrumbs. You just unearth this wonderful world. Well, we've all had that crash as well, where we're in the we're in the cleats. I remember my first one. Everyone's had the crash where they kind of get to the traffic lights and realise they're clipped in. Mine was even worse. I went to the local group ride and I got a load of hand-me-down kit from an ex-pro. So I looked legit. Like, I had no idea what I was doing, but I looked legit. I remember looking at pictures of him and I even mimicked how he'd wear his cap. So I looked like someone who knew how to cycle on his hand-me-down bike as well. Got up to the local group ride. They're all waiting there, like maybe 50 guys. I ride past them all and I go to stop in like position one, realize I've never clipped out of these things before and boom, down I go. It takes a long time to build the confidence back after that. I think everyone's got to fall off, you know, as soon as you get cleats, whether it's a first ride or the 10th ride, you've got to come off to understand, yeah, how not to fall off, if that makes sense. So yeah, all the girls have done that and it's just been a huge learning curve. I mean, getting them on rollers for the first time, that was I was, it was hilarious, but it was, it was a big learning curve as well. That's hard for anyone. Like we, we talked about resilience and the role of the coach, at least in my experience, the athletes that I work with still, it's a dual role. You're also becoming very close to these individuals. You're learning a lot about their families. You're learning a lot about what makes them tick internally. And if we think about resilience as one side of the coin, there is a lot of emotional trauma on the other side of that coin as well. Has that been a role you found yourself in as almost a quasi-counsellor? Yeah, I mean, 
when we first started training in October, uh, we would train twice a week. We'd do a Tuesday and a Thursday. And seven girls is, I mean, it's a bunch of girls for one coach, so I did get a bit of help. And they'd turn up, and occasionally I would get one of the girls coming over and saying, listen, we've had a bit of a rough week. We've had this news from Afghanistan. Can you go easy on us? And it's not like I thrash them or put them through the paces. A lot of it is very basic, you know, bike handling stuff and whether it's cornering or sending or, you know, we're not saying we're going to be sat on the river for an hour and going crazy. But what I try to get across to the girls, um, and I'm a relatively new coach, I qualified in 2015, the British Cycling. What, what I try to get across is, look, cycling can be your escapism. It certainly was for me. I didn't compete at a high level, just did a lot of local stuff. But when you come here, Whatever troubles you've got, just try and park it at the door. Come, cycle. It's like a sense of freedom. It's almost like a sort of um, – it's, it's very similar to life, isn't it? You feel free on a bike. When we, when we train for an hour or two, just pitch all the troubles at the door and try and enjoy the cycling. And that, that kind of worked a little bit. And um, what we found with the girls is everyone's found a different level. And the two girls which have pushed and shown that resilience – and, you know, resilience is a, is a great word because they've pushed on – and they've gone at the next level. They've hit an FTP test, then they've done the next one, and you can see the improvement. And they've just gone, and they've gone. They've turned up at every session, and it's the commitment and the consistency. And I've found with cycling myself, you know, at an amateur level, anything you do which is consistent, you'll get the improvements. But the girls, that no disrespect to them, because some of them have got various other things going on in their life, they've not made a session or missed out a couple of weeks, or the training peak TSS score for the week has gone right down. It's like, well, actually, how much potential have they got? It's not about how hard you push the pedals down. It's about that commitment and that tenacity to repeat and just keep going, you know? Yeah, and also, I think you can have many different relationships with the bike. We get caught in this paradigm sometimes to thinking that the only journey that matters in cycling is coming into the sport as a newbie and going from Cat 4 to Cat 3 to Cat 2 to Cat 1 to getting a contract in France to trying to step up to racing, Olympics, international competitions or pro contracts. That's one path. Like that doesn't have to be the only path. That doesn't have to be the only relationship. No. Like I look now at, you know, the benefit of 10 years plus in the industry. And, you know, that's the path I chose. And for a long time, I was very tunnel visioned. I thought that was the only path. But I look at some of my friends who also chose that path and they fell off at various points. Some made it all the way. Others fell off at various points. But I have another group of friends who chose a totally different path who their relationship with cycling was never that. They never pinned the number on, but they'd still go and ride five, six hours on a weekend, but they wouldn't beat themselves up if they didn't train then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then they might go on a BMX ride or a mountain bike ride or book a gravel cycling holiday. 10 years later, those guys are still loving the bike. It's still a very positive part of their life and they've got a lot of benefit from it. So there is a lot of different you know, pathways the girls can find themselves on. If some of them go to Paris, I think that's amazing and there'll be inspirations for others. But maybe some will just draw lessons that they'll take in terms of, you know, work ethic, in terms of showing up on time, in terms of, you know, completing a set of instructions within a session. They'll go and apply them into a job that they have or a relationship that they have. Absolutely. I think there's a discipline required for cycling. You know, certainly the more competitive you get. So Mina and Arifa are the two girls that we are going to Thailand with in June. So June the 10th is the women's individual time trial. And we chat about finding a level. So as we've moved on from October to now we're April 2023, various girls have just kept it as a social sport. You know, like you mentioned about your pals going for long rides. They'll do rides. They might come at the circuit. They might go to Richmond Park. 
they'll just keep it nice and light and easy. But one of the things I've tried to do with Mina and Reefer, and I'm constantly doing it, is I'm checking, are you still enjoying it? Because if you, yeah. if you, if you don't enjoy it, these girls aren't on pro contracts. They're not getting paid. I mean, to have an opportunity to wear your national colours, the Afghan colours, and go to Paris or go to the UCI World Champs in Glasgow this year, I mean, that's the driver in itself. And so as we're checking in and as we're building up and going through a build phase with the training, they're telling me they're still enjoying it. And I don't know where this journey is going to go. I don't know if they will get to Paris. I don't know if they'll qualify. Um, I mean, we speak to the president of the Afghan Cycling Federation, who incidentally obviously left Afghanistan, and he's based in Switzerland, near the UCI. Um, so we've got a reasonable relationship with him. And there's two girls that ride for the Israeli Premier uh, Tech team in Italy, so they're based in Italy, and they're pro riders. So there's Fariba and Yuldos. They're top, top riders. They're on the tour. Um, they do, yeah, the, the, the regular circuit and stuff. They'll be there, but they're riding the road race. Now, for Mina and Arifa, who've come from quite a different background, to be meeting these pro riders, uh, we're actually going to tee up a Zoom call or something before we get there. It's just going to be a, a whole different world to them. So I said at any point, you can jump off and still enjoy cycling. You can enjoy it whether you're riding in the park, whether you're doing a local crit. We don't have to go for this Olympic qualifier if it, if it gets too much, you know? The thing with the Olympics, and I suppose this is where your expertise comes in, not in a callous way, but no one gives a shit about their backgrounds. The stopwatch doesn't give a shit about their backgrounds. The you know competitors don't give a shit about their backgrounds. Competitors are single focused. You know the favorite for the women's TT isn't going to be pedaling any easier that day. She's not going to take her pacing strategy down eighty watts because the girls are there to make them feel good. High performance sport is exclusionary. It's elitist. It's marginal gains. How are you navigating that challenging environment, even with things like aerodynamics? Obviously, the girls are wearing hijabs. There are restrictions around clothing they can wear in a world where we're going into the wind tunnel and we're trying to shave half a watt off these days we're moving <laughs> to a new Endure Encapsulator skin suit. Well, I've chatted about all the, the, the very small changes we can make to get the marginal gains. And, you know, going from never wearing cleats to understanding power to heart rate. These things about shaving the odd what off is, you know, we're, we're still yet to come to that. But I think for the girls, you know, going over to Thailand for this, this qualifier, they'll be competing against some big countries, you know, like South Korea, China. For them, it's, we chatted about it. It's a symbol of hope. It's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a symbol of, you know, doing it for Afghan women, doing it for Muslim women and doing it for them, for their journey. Now, we know we're not going to compete if we do get to Paris or the UCI Worlds with the, the women's, you know, Netherlands champion. You know, I forget her name, but she's, she's, she's top dog. There's no way our FTP, for example, compared to these pro riders that ride for 10 years, year in, year out, we can't compete. But it's more of a symbolic thing, I think. And while the girls need to turn up and do it on merit, um, we don't get a free pass. I think we're well aware, you know, we're very realistic about where we're going to be fitting in in, in in the national scene, you know. But there is definitely a grown body of Muslim girls who are looking at these areas. I know my friend that I referenced in Qatar, she has an amazing company, Ula Sports. And they're making more aerodynamic hijabs uh, that you can sweat in a little bit easier as well that aren't as restrictive under the helmet. So the more girls like your girls that come through and go into the spotlight, the more entrepreneurs are going to come and say, there's a need for this, there's a demand for this, and it's going to just grow and grow. 
Yeah, I mean, we had a conversation with Wiggle. Um, obviously, Wiggle's an online store for running, cycling, and try. And they wanted to sponsor us with their DHB kit. It never turned out like that. We ended up sticking with Trek and, you know, they're going to provide the clothing and stuff. But they're actually um, piloting exactly that. It was that um, there's a hijab, which was more aero rather than it being a little bit more flappy. You know, it was more fit to the face, just like Lycra would do. Um, So we had a chat with them and all the time they're making changes in the sport. But we know when we get to Thailand, for example, we're going to be in 30 to 35 degrees. Uh, still don't have the course details, but let's. it's going to be 40k touch and it's going to be hilly. Now, the girls have their arms covered and they have their legs covered and they have their hijabs. And there's some honest sort of questions there, you know, like I don't want to breach their cultural and religious beliefs, but I do know that there is some Muslim cyclists that will be wearing short sleeves and will be wearing, you know, bare legs. So it's a very much a matter to the, for them, but I respect whatever they want to do, of course. It's their race, but there will be implications, I guess. What's your roadblocks at the moment? What are you missing in terms of Trek have kindly come in and given you a bunch of bikes, you're saying they're doing equipment, uh, clothing as well. What are you missing? What would make life easier at the moment for the girls? Oh, the biggest thing is nutrition. Um, we we reached out. I say we reached out. The Royal We, myself, I just sent a bunch of emails to info addresses all the regular nutrition stuff, you know, like Power Bar, SIS, just just the just the, the leading brands. And saying, I wrote an email, I sent the BBC links. I said, look, we've got this wonderful story, we've got this wonderful opportunity. At the moment, nutrition's funded by myself, you know, going to the local bike shop. Sometimes they'd turn up for a ride and I'd ask them, it, despite all the WhatsApps and saying, look, girls, make sure you have a good dinner the night before, the next morning have your oats and, you know, just, just feel yourself for the ride. And they'd rock up at my place, and get the bikes out of the vans. I just casually say, what do you have for breakfast? We'd look at each other and, well, we haven't had anything. I said, well, we're going on a four-hour ride. You, you need something. So back in the house, you know, make some porridge, get some eggs on, start to feed them. So the next week came around and uh, I said, girls, what did you have for your breakfast? And Mina started giggling. And uh, she'll probably tell me off for telling you this story. But she said, we had, um, <laughs> we, we had some biscuits. I said, you had some biscuits? And I thought it was a joke. I said, what, what biscuits? Yeah, like the biscuits you put in your tea. I said, look, girls, we need to get serious with this. It's not just about riding a bike. So nutrition and, and, and sort of conveying that, that message of, of how we feel and how we repair our bodies, it's, it's been huge. And, and we're getting there. I mean, we've had the sessions with the, with the Nutribullet and the oats and the protein powder, and we've gone through all that kind of stuff and about the carbs and the protein. I take them for dinner when I can. And so this is what we need to be eating. But the limitations they've got, because they're not in their own home at the moment, they're in government accommodation, they've got to fit to mealtime. So they can't cook. It's very reliant on what the restaurant will provide for them. And not making excuses, they've got the food there. It's just forming those habits, as you know, as a cyclist. We've become particular. I mean, I know I did. I started weighing my oats and I started looking exactly what time I'm going to eat my oats and, and all this kind of stuff. But that's my biggest challenge. A sponsor for nutrition and educating the girls to understand the importance. And they nearly go hand in hand because once you understand the education piece, like we've really had this transition in the last few years, even in my time in cycling, especially when I was training with better riders, you know, friends who are world tour, and we might be doing a five-hour ride. And the fueling strategy for a five-hour ride would be get up, have your breakfast, ride two and a half hours to the calf, have a croissant and a coffee in the calf and ride two and a half hours home and have your lunch. 
that's not long ago. And we've had this transition in the last few years of moving to, you know, 100, 120 grams of carbs per hour in some cases. Well, it's brilliant and it brings training up another level. There's a cost to that. It gels Costers, are yeah. 250, 350 a gel. I mean, these girls are light. You know, Mina's 45 kilos, Sarifa's 52. Their power to weight is looking pretty good as their power's going up. But <laughs> in terms of fueling, you know, even 60 grams an hour, um, it doesn't help that gels aren't the most palatable thing. But, you know, eating on the bike is quite a tricky thing. You know, the bike handling skills of the girls is getting better and better. But to take on, you know, 60 grams of carbs over a four-hour ride, that's a lot of gels and obviously your fluid as well. And it's just not happening, you know. I mean, I go out on the ride, so I've started to lose a little bit of weight and get back out on the bike. But, yeah, riding every week and it's like, girls, it's been half an hour. What have we had? We had a drink or we had some food. So it's, it's not just about setting a plan and sticking to a plan. It's that intro to cycling, which you've done when you first started. And I, I keep banging on about that. It's unearthing everything and reminding yourself that they don't know about this. You know, they, they don't know what it's like to, to, to navigate your UK roads, the highway code. But that, I mean, that's another challenge when you go on a road. Um, the traffic, it's just um, a separate thing. So what's success look like for you and the girls in the next, you know, when, when are we, how far away are we from Paris now? Two years? Yeah, Paris 2024. Um, we've got eight weeks until the qualifier in Rayong, which is uh, just east of Bangkok. So we'll go along there. We'll have the, the time trial. And if they qualify, they will be invited to Paris to represent Afghanistan in the women's time trial. If, if we don't qualify, we're hopeful. Um, I can't confirm or deny this just now, but hopeful there'll be a wild card entry just because of their situation that they can go and represent Afghanistan. That would be success. That would be the ultimate success to like, whether it's in the media, social media, to come back on the aeroplane and go, do you know what? We're going to Paris. I mean, what a fantastic achievement from riding on gravel roads, on hybrid bikes, to, to never being in a pair of cleats. And within 12 months, then you're going to the biggest sporting event in the world. James, it's an amazing project. You should be super proud of your involvement with us. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Roadman Podcast. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.